Section 12 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. Compiled by Merle Johnson. Blueskin the Pirate. Part 1. Subchapter 1. Cape May and Cape Henlopen form, as it were, the upper and lower jaws of a gigantic mouth, which disgorges from its monstrous gullet the cloudy waters of the Delaware Bay into the heaving, sparkling blue-green of the Atlantic Ocean. From Cape Henlopen, as the lower jaw there juts out a long curving fang of high, smooth-rolling sand-dunes, cutting sharp and clean against the still blue sky above, silent, naked, utterly deserted, excepting for the squat, white-walled lighthouse standing upon the crest of the highest hill. Within this curving, sheltering hook of sand-hills lie the smooth waters of Lewes Harbour, and, set a little back from the shore, the quaint old town, with its dingy wooden houses of clapboard and shingle, looks sleepily out through the mass of the shipping lying at anchor in the harbour, to the purple, clean-cut, level thread of the ocean horizon beyond. Lewes is a queer, odd, old-fashioned little town, smelling fragrant of salt marsh and sea-breeze, it is rarely visited by strangers. The people who live there are the progeny of people who have lived there for many generations, and it is the very place to nurse and preserve and care for old legends and traditions of bygone times, until they grow from bits of gossip and news into local history of considerable size. As the busier world men talk of last year's elections, here these old bits and scraps and odds and ends of history are retailed to the listener who cares to listen. Traditions of the War of 1812, when Bursford's fleet lay off the harbour threatening to bombard the town, tales of the Revolution and of Earl Howe's warships, tarrying for a while in the quiet harbour before they sailed up the river to shake old Philadelphia town with the thunders of their guns at Red Bank and Fort Mifflin. With these substantial and sober threads of real history, other and more lucid colours are interwoven into the web of local lore legends of the dark doings of famous pirates, of their mysteries, sinister comings and goings, of treasures buried in the sand-dunes and pine barrens back of the cape, and along the Atlantic beach to the southward. Of such is the story of Blueskin the Pirate. Subchapter 2 It was in the fall and early winter of the year 1750, and again in the summer of the year following, that the famous pirate, Blueskin, became especially identified with Lewes as a part of its traditional history. For some time, for three or four years, rumors and reports of Blueskin's doings in the West Indies and off the Carolinas had been brought in now and then by sea captains. There was no more cruel, bloody, desperate, devilish pirate than he in all those pirate-infested waters. All kinds of wild and bloody stories were current concerning him, but it never occurred to the good folk of Lewes that such stories were some time to be a part of their own history. But one day a schooner came drifting into Lewes Harbour, shattered, wounded, her forecastle splintered, her foremast shot half away, and three great tattered holes in her mainsail. The mate with one of the crew came ashore in the boat for help and a doctor. He reported that the captain and the cook were dead, and there were three wounded men aboard. The story he told to the gathering crowd brought a very peculiar thrill to those who heard it. They had fallen in with Blueskin, he said, off Fenwick's Island, some twenty or thirty miles below the Capes. And the pirates had come aboard of them, 
but finding that the cargo of the schooner consisted only of cypress shingles and lumber, had soon quitted their prize. Perhaps Blueskin was disappointed at not finding a more valuable capture. Perhaps the spirit of deviltry was hotter in him that morning than usual. Anyhow, as the pirate craft bore away, she fired three broadsides at short range into the helpless coaster. The captain had been killed at the first fire, the cook had died on the way up, three of the crew were wounded, and the vessel was leaking fast, betwixt wind and water. Such was the mate's story. It spread like wildfire, and in half an hour all the town was in a ferment. Fenwick's island was very near home. Blueskin might come sailing into the harbor at any minute, and then— In an hour Sheriff Jones had called together most of the able-bodied men of the town. Muskets and rifles were taken down from the chimney-places, and every preparation was made to defend the place against the pirates, should they come into the harbor and attempt to land. But Blueskin did not come that day, nor did he come the next or the next. But on the afternoon of the third the news went suddenly flying over the town that the pirates were inside the capes. As the report spread, the people came running, men, women, and children, to the green before the tavern, where a little knot of old seamen were gathered together, looking fixedly out toward the offing, talking in low voices. Two vessels, one bark-rigged, the other and smaller a sloop, were slowly creeping up the bay, a couple of miles or so away and just inside the cape. There appeared nothing remarkable about the two crafts, but the little crowd that continued gathering upon the green stood looking out across the bay at them, none the less anxiously for that. They were sailing close-hauled to the wind, the sloop following in the wake of her consort as the pilot fish follows in the wake of the shark. But the course they held did not lie toward the harbor, but rather bore away toward the Jersey shore, and by and by it began to be apparent that Blueskin did not intend visiting the town. Nevertheless, those who stood looking did not draw a free breath until, after watching the two pirates for more than an hour and a half, they saw them, then about six miles away, suddenly put about and sail with a free wind out to sea again. "'The bloody villains have gone,' said old Captain Wolf, shutting his telescope with a click. But Luz was not yet quit of Blueskin. Two days later a half-breed from Indian River Bay came up, bringing the news that the pirates had sailed into the inlet, some fifteen miles below Luz, and had careened the bark to clean her. Perhaps Blueskin did not care to stir up the country people against him for the half-breed reported that the pirates were doing no harm, and that what they took from the farmers of Indian River and Rehoboth they paid for with good hard money. It was while the excitement over the pirates was at its highest fever heat that Levi West came home again. Sub-Chapter 3 Even in the middle of the last century, the grist-mill, a couple of miles from Lewes, although it was at most but fifty or sixty years old, had all a look of weather-beaten age, for the cypress shingles, of which it was built, ripen in a few years of wind and weather, to a silvery hoary gray, and the white powdering of flour lent it a look as though the dust of ages had settled upon it, making the shadows within dim, soft, mysterious. A dozen willow-trees shaded with dappling, shivering ripples of shadow the road before the mill door, and the mill itself, and the long, narrow, shingle-built, one-storied hip-roofed dwelling-house. At the time of the story the mill had descended in a direct line of succession to Hiram White, the grandson of old Ephraim White, who had built it, it was said, in 1701. Hiram White was only twenty-seven years old, but he was already in local repute as a character. 
as a boy he was thought to be half-witted or natural and as is the case with such unfortunates in small country towns where everybody knows everybody he was made a common sport and jest for the keener crueler wits of the neighbourhood now that he was grown to the ripeness of manhood he was still looked upon as being to use a quaint expression slack or not just right he was heavy awkward ungainly and loose-jointed and enormously prodigiously strong he had a lumpish thick-featured face with lips heavy and loosely hanging that gave him an air of stupidity half droll half pathetic his little eyes were set far apart and flat with his face his eyebrows were nearly white and his hair was of a sandy colourless kind he was singularly taciturn lisping thickly when he did talk and stuttering and hesitating in his speech as though his words moved faster than his mind could follow it was the custom for local wags to urge or badger or tempt him to talk for the sake of the ready laugh that always followed the few thick stammering words and the stupid drooping of the jaw at the end of each short speech perhaps squire hall was the only one in lewes hundred who misdoubted that hiram was half-witted he had had dealings with him and was wont to say that whoever bought hiram white for a fool made a fool's bargain certainly whether he had common wits or no hiram had managed his mill to pretty good purpose and was fairly well off in the world as prosperity went in southern delaware and in those days no doubt had it come to the pinch he might have bought some of his tormentors out three times over hiram white had suffered quite a financial loss some six months before through that very blueskin who was now lurking in indian river inlet he had entered into a venture with joshua shippen a philadelphia merchant to the tune of seven hundred pounds sterling the money had been invested in a cargo of flour and cornmeal which had shipped to jamaica by the bark nancy lee the nancy lee had been captured by the pirates off curatuck sound the crew set adrift in the longboat and the bark herself and all her cargo burned to the water's edge five hundred of the seven hundred pounds invested in the unfortunate venture was money bequeathed by hiram's father seven years before to levi west eliza white had been twice married the second time to the widow west she had brought with her to her new home a good-looking long-legged black-eyed black-haired ne'er-do-well of a son a year or so younger than hiram he was a shrewd quick-witted lad idle shiftless wilful ill-trained perhaps but as bright and keen as a pin he was the very opposite to poor dull hiram eliza white had never loved his son he was ashamed of the poor slack-witted oaf upon the other hand he was very fond of levi west whom he always called our levi and whom he treated in every way as though he were his own son he tried to train the lad to work in the mill and was patient beyond what the patience of most fathers would have been with his stepson's idleness and shiftlessness never mind he used to say levi'll come all right levi's as bright as a button it was one of the greatest blows of the old miller's life when levi ran away to sea in his last sickness the old man's mind constantly turned to his lost stepson maybe he'll come back again said he and if he does i want you to be good to him hiram i've done my duty by you and have left you the house and mill but i want you to promise that if levi comes back again you'll give him a home and a shelter under this roof if he wants one and hiram had promised to do as his father asked after eliezer died it was found that he had bequeathed five hundred pounds to his beloved stepson levi west and had left squire hall as trustee 
Levi West had been gone nearly nine years, and not a word had been heard from him. There could be little or no doubt that he was dead. One day Hiram came into Squire Hall's office with a letter in his hand. It was the time of the old French war, and flour and cornmeal were fetching fabulous prices in the British West Indies. The letter Hiram brought with him was from a Philadelphia merchant, Josiah Shippen, with whom he had had some dealings. Mr. Shippen proposed that Hiram should join him in sending a venture of flour and cornmeal to Kingston, Jamaica. Hiram had slept upon the letter overnight, and now he brought it to the old squire. Squire Hall read the letter, shaking his head the while. "'Too much risk, Hiram,' said he. "'Mr. Shippen wouldn't have asked you to go into this venture if he could have got anybody else to do so. My advice is that you let it alone. I reckon you've come to me for advice?' Hiram shook his head. "'Ye haven't? What have ye come for, then?' Seven hundred pounds,' said Hiram. Seven hundred pounds?' said Squire Hall. I haven't got seven hundred pounds to lend you, Hiram. Five hundred been left to Levi. I got hundred. Raise hundred more on mortgage, said Hiram. Tut, tut, Hiram, said Squire Hall. That'll never do in the world. Suppose Levi West should come back again. What then? I am responsible for that money. If you wanted to borrow it now for any reasonable venture, you should have it and welcome. But for such a wildcat scheme. Levi never come back, said Hiram. Nine years gone. Levi's dead.' "'Maybe he is,' said Squire Hall. "'But we don't know that.' "'I'll give bond for security,' said Hiram. Squire Hall thought for a while in silence. "'Very well, Hiram,' said he by and by, "'if you'll do that. Your father left the money, and I don't see that it's right for me to stay his son from using it. But if it is lost, Hiram, and if Levi should come back, it will go well to ruin ye.' So Hiram White invested seven hundred pounds in the Jamaica venture, and every farthing of it was burned by Blueskin, off Currituck Sound. Sub-Chapter 4 Sally Martin was said to be the prettiest girl in Lou's Hundred, and when the rumor began to leak out that Hiram White was courting her, the whole community took it as a monstrous joke. It was the common thing to greet Hiram himself with, "'Hey, Hiram, how's Sally?' Hiram never made answer to such salutation, but went his way as heavily, as impassively, as dully as ever. The joke was true. Twice a week, rain or shine, Hiram White never failed to scrape his feet upon Billy Martin's doorstep. Twice a week, on Sundays and Thursdays, he never failed to make his customary seat by the kitchen fire. He rarely said anything by way of talk. He nodded to the farmer, to his wife, to Sally, and, when he chanced to be at home, to her brother, but he ventured nothing further. There he would sit from half-past seven until nine o'clock, stolid, heavy, impassive, his dull eyes following now one of the family and now another, but always coming back again to Sally. It sometimes happened that she had other company, some of the young men of the neighborhood. The presence of such seemed to make no difference to Hiram. He bore whatever broad jokes might be cracked upon him, whatever grins, whatever giggling might follow those jokes, with the same patient impassiveness. There he would sit, silent, unresponsive. Then, at the first stroke of nine o'clock, he would rise, shoulder his ungainly person into his overcoat, twist his head into his three-cornered hat, and with a, "'Good night, Sally, I be going now,' would take his departure, shutting the door carefully to behind him. Never, perhaps, was there a girl in the world had such a lover and such a courtship as Sally Martin. Subchapter 5 It was one Thursday evening— 
in the latter part of November, about a week after Blueskin's appearance off the Capes, and while the one subject of talk was of the pirates being in Indian River Inlet. The air was still and wintry. A sudden cold snap had set in, and skins of ice had formed over puddles in the road. The smoke from the chimneys rose straight in the quiet air, and voices sounded loud, as they do in frosty weather. Hiram White sat by the dim light of a tallow dip, poring laboriously over some account books. It was not quite seven o'clock, and he never started for Billy Martin's before that hour. As he ran his finger slowly and hesitantly down the column of figures, he heard the kitchen door beyond open and shut, the noise of footsteps crossing the floor, and the scraping of a chair dragged forward to the hearth. Then came the sound of a basket of corn cobs being emptied on the smoldering blaze, and then the snapping and crackling of the reanimated fire. Hiram thought nothing of all this, excepting, in a dim sort of way, that it was Bob, the negro mill-hand, or old black Dinah, the housekeeper, and so went on with his calculations. At last he closed the books with a snap, and, smoothing down his hair, arose, took up the candle, and passed out of the room into the kitchen beyond. A man was sitting in front of the corn-cob fire that flamed and blazed in the great, gaping, sooty fireplace. A rough overcoat was flung over the chair behind him, and his hands were spread out to the roaring warmth. At the sound of the lifted latch, and of Hiram's entrance, he turned his head, and when Hiram saw his face, he stood suddenly still as though turned to stone. The face, marvelously altered and changed as it was, was the face of his stepbrother, Levi West. He was not dead. He had come home again. For a time not a sound broke the dead, unbroken silence, excepting the crackling of the blaze in the fireplace, and the sharp tickling of the tall clock in the corner. The one face, dull and stolid, with the light of the candle shining upward over its lumpy features, looked fixedly, immovably, stonily, at the other sharp, shrewd cunning, the red wavering light of the blaze shining upon the high cheekbones, cutting sharp on the nose, and twinkling in the glassy turn of the black, rat-like eyes. Then suddenly that face cracked, broadened, spread to a grin. "'I have come back again, High,' said Levi, and at the sound of the words the speechless spell was broken. Hiram answered never a word, but he walked to the fireplace, set the candle down upon the dusty mantel-shelf among the boxes and bottles, and, drawing forward a chair upon the other side of the hearth, sat down. His dull little eyes never moved from his stepbrother's face. There was no curiosity in his expression, no surprise, no wonder. The heavy under lip drooped a little farther open, and there was more than usual of dull expressionless stupidity upon the lumpish face, but that was all. As was said, the face upon which he looked was strangely, marvelously changed from what it had been when he had last seen it nine years before, and though it was still the face of Levi West, it was a very different Levi West than the shiftless ne'er-do-well who had run away to sea in the Brazilian brig that long time ago. That Levi West had been a rough, careless, happy-go-lucky fellow, thoughtless and selfish, but with nothing essentially evil or sinister in his nature. The Levi West that now sat in the rush-bottom chair at the other side of the fireplace had that stamped upon his front that might be both evil and sinister. His swart complexion was tanned to an Indian copper. On one side of his face was a curious discoloration in the skin and a long, crooked, cruel scar 
that ran diagonally across the forehead and temple and cheek in a white jagged seam this discoloration was of a livid blue about the tint of a tattoo mark it made a patch the size of a man's hand lying across the cheek and the side of the neck hiram could not keep his eyes from this mark and the white scar cutting across it there was an odd sort of incongruity in levi's dress a pair of heavy gold earrings and a dirty red handkerchief knotted loosely around his neck beneath an open collar displaying to its full length the lean sinewy throat with its bony adam's apple gave to his costume somewhat the smack of a sailor he wore a coat that had once been of fine plum colour now stained and faded too small for his lean length and furbished with tarnished lace dirty cambric cuffs hung at his wrists and on his fingers were half a dozen or more rings set with stones that shone and glistened and twinkled in the light of the fire the hair at either temple was twisted into a spanish curl plastered flat to the cheek and a plaited queue hung halfway down his back hiram speaking never a word sat motionless his dull little eyes travelling slowly up and down and around and around his stepbrother's person levi did not seem to notice his scrutiny leaning forward now with his palms spread out to the grateful warmth now rubbing them slowly together but at last he suddenly whirled his chair around rasping on the floor and faced his stepbrother he thrust his hands into his capacious coat pocket and brought out a pipe which he proceeded to fill from a skin of tobacco well hi said he do you see i've come back home again thought you was dead said hiram dully levi laughed then he drew a red-hot coal out of the fire put it upon the bowl of the pipe and began puffing out clouds of pungent smoke nay nay said he not dead not dead by odds but puff by the eternal holy high i played many a close game puff with old davy jones for all that hiram's look turned inquiringly toward the jagged scar and levi caught the slow glance you're looking at this said he running his finger down the crooked seam that looks bad but it wasn't so close as this laying his hand for a moment upon the livid stain a coolie devil off singapore gave me that cut when we fell foul of an opium junk in the china sea four years ago last september this touching the disfiguring blue patch again was a closer miss high a spanish captain fired a pistol at me down off santa catharina he was so nigh that the powder went under the skin and it'll never come out again his eyes he had better have fired the pistol into his own head that morning but never mind that i reckon i'm changed ain't i high he took his pipe out of his mouth and looked inquiringly at hiram who nodded levi laughed never doubt it said he but whether i'm changed or no i'll take my affidavy that you are the same old half-witted high that you used to be i remember dad used to say that you hadn't no more than enough wits to keep you out of the rain and talking of dad high our hern tell he's been dead now these nine years gone do ye know what i've come home for hiram shook his head i've come for that five hundred pounds that dad left me when he died for i hearn tell of that too hiram sat quite still for a second or two and then he said i put that money out to venture and lost it all levi's face fell and he took his pipe out of his mouth regarding hiram sharply and keenly what do you mean said he presently i thought you was dead and i put seven hundred pounds into nancy lee and blueskin burned her off curatuck burned her off curatuck 
repeated Levi. Then suddenly a light seemed to break upon his comprehension. Burned by Blueskin, he repeated, and thereupon flung himself back in his chair and burst into a short, boisterous fit of laughter. Well, by the holy eternal high, if that isn't a piece of your tarnal luck. Burned by Blueskin, was it? He paused for a moment, as though turning it over in his mind. Then he laughed again. All the same, said he presently, do you see? I can't suffer for Blueskin's doings. The money was willed to me, fair and true, and you have got to pay it, Hiram White. Burn or sink, Blueskin or no Blueskin. Again he puffed for a moment or two in reflective silence. All the same, High, said he, once more resuming the thread of talk. I don't reckon to be too hard on you. You be only half-witted, anyway, and I shan't be too hard on you. I give you a month to raise that money, and while you're doing it, I'll just hang around here. I've been in trouble, High, do you see? I'm under a cloud, and so I want to keep here, as quiet as may be. I'll tell you how it came about. I had a set-to with a land pirate in Philadelphia, and somebody got hurt. That's the reason I'm here now, and don't you say anything about it. Do you understand? Hiram opened his lips as though it was his intent to answer, then seemed to think better of it, and contented himself by nodding his head. That Thursday night was the first for a sixth month that Hiram White did not scrape his feet clean at Billy Martin's doorstep. End of Section 12